Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you once again for joining us for another half hour or so. You can find earlier episodes that you can listen to at your leisure at our website, thenexttrack.com. And by following us on Twitter, you'll stay up to date on random related topics. Our Twitter handle is NextTrackCast. This is episode number 133 of The Next Track. This is the second part of a two-episode extravaganza we're calling Desert Island Discs. You probably are familiar with the rules of the game. You are exiled to a desert island, and you can only take 10 albums with you. What 10 would you take? Now, sometimes this game is limited to five or three or even one album, but we're going with 10 apiece because we have 30 minutes to fill. In the first go-around a couple of weeks ago, Kirk presented his 10 picks, and this week, I will add mine. Let's just remind listeners that there are constraints. You can only pick a single CD, which means that we were limited to, if you listened to last week's episode, I mentioned a couple of things that I would have liked to pick, which are multiple CDs, but this does open the possibility of some older 2LP records that can fit on a single CD. So I could have picked London Calling, which I almost did, because that fits on a CD, but I wouldn't have been able to pick Sandinista, which takes two CDs. Well, as a matter of fact, I did pick London Calling by The Clash, and let me say up front that uh, my picks aren't in any particular order, and I'm just mentioning it first because you brought up the album as an example. So I picked London Calling, and I didn't pick Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. And the reason I'm clarifying that is that I see these two albums as being very similar for lots of reasons. I mean, from the obvious, they're both double albums. They both came with amazing black-and-white album art and handwritten lyrics and the liner sheets and stuff like that. They're both British but they're both very American and so on. But anyway, I bought London Calling shortly after it came out in very early 1980. I was in college. I probably spent some of my textbook budget on it. And now at this time in my life, I lived on campus and I was going home every weekend to my hometown about an hour or so away. And I'd spend the weekend with my with my friends. And at the time, I was playing in a, in a semi-professional band with some of these guys, and we'd get gigs on the weekend. But I didn't like doing that anymore. I didn't like going home on the weekend. So along comes London Calling, which totally blew me away. And I remember I made a cassette. I made a cassette tape of it, and I brought it to my pals. And I'm like, so listen to this. It's awesome. But they didn't get it. They didn't get it at all. These are guys who liked Queen and Steely Dan and the Eagles and stuff like that. So I, then and there, I decided I'm not going back. I quit the band. I stayed around campus and off campus on the weekends, made a ton of new friends, got really into my studies, got into radio, yada, yada. Now, I don't want to attribute this, um, this tectonic shift in my life to, to London Calling, but it was a factor. And I'll always associate it, uh, along with Pink Floyd's The Wall that came out about the same time, I'll always associate it with this particular time, this sense of a fresh beginning, of good opportunities, shedding the things that I thought were holding me back. It was represented a new direction for me. But what I loved about London Calling is that it was rockin' and it was snappy and it was political and it was raw. I remember there was a reviewer who said at the time it was so raw you could hear how bad Joe Strummer's teeth were. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm picking it because it's still a joy to listen to. I can still find new things to appreciate. Terrific homages to American styles, Western Hemisphere styles. I, I can listen to it over and over. Yeah, great lyrics, too. And, and it rocks. It has energy. It's interesting you mentioned Exile on Main Street because they sort of bookend the 70s. They are similar in a way. Two records covering 
like a, a broad scope of different types of music. You know, the Exxon on Main Street was what, 71 and, and London Calling 79. It's fair to say that the 70s didn't start until about 71 because the 60s didn't end on time. And the 70s kind of ended around that period, 78, 79, after disco died and, you know, when New Wave started rolling in. So those are two good choices. I mentioned last week that London Calling was on the first version of my list and got knocked out by Bob Dylan. But if if I didn't have classical music on my list, which takes up, I guess, more than half of it, I would certainly have picked London Calling. So as I mentioned, I didn't pick Exile on Main Street for this list, but I did pick a Rolling Stones album. It is Get Your Yaya's Out, The Rolling Stones in Concert. This is an album that was recorded in November of 1969 at the Madison Square Garden shows for the American tour, ostensibly promoting the Let It Bleed album, which was actually released after the tour was over, strangely enough. It's also Mick Taylor's first full Stones album. Now, before I, I, I first heard this record as a kid, I wasn't exactly a Stones fan. I didn't like the songs they had on the radio, like Under My Thumb and Ruby Tuesday and Lady Jane and stuff like that. I, I, I didn't like those songs at all. I liked Satisfaction, I suppose, but they weren't doing a lot of songs like that. So a friend of mine had this album, Get Your Yaya's Out, when we were in junior high school, and the only song I knew on it was Honky Tonk Women because other people had already covered it. Uh, Joe Cockart did a version that I was familiar with. So as one does, I borrowed Get Your Yaya's Out from my friend so I could listen to it at my house, and that's when I became a Stones fan because these guys wicked rocked on this album. Part of the reason is that it's a pretty stripped-down band. And, and they were doing arrangements of songs with a lot more, shall I say, chunka-chunka than the studio versions. For example, they do a version of Sympathy for the Devil. Now, if you know the version from Beggar's Banquet, it's mostly piano and congas and guys in the background going, hoo-hoo, right? But the live version has none of that. It's all guitar. There are no hoo-hoos, no piano, no congas. And it's a much more straight-ahead rock song. Same sort of thing with Midnight Rambler. It's a, it's a rockin' John Lee Hooker sort of boogie. The guitar soloing is really terrific. The Chuck Berry covers they do, they do Carol and Little Queenie, are, are out-splendid. Nothing like the dinky little studio versions that they had recorded in the early 60s. It's one of the best live rock concert recordings, if not the best. You can fight me about it. Now, I learned how to play rhythm guitar by listening to Keith Richards on this album, and I even got my hair cut like Keith Richards. That's how much I love this record. You mention that record regularly, and, and I must admit, I've only heard it a few times. It was never on my radar back in the day. I mean, I did have Exile and Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed, and, and, and you know, that was the stuff. But I, I've never been that into the Rolling Stones' live recordings, and they didn't do too many live records. They only did a handful. Uh, recently, they've started selling live downloads, I think, of a couple of concerts, but not much. But yeah, I'll have to go back and listen to that. I've only listened to it a few times. Yeah, you know, I don't like their other live albums. I have Love You Live, and I like the Elma Combo side on that one. And the album with Going to a Go-Go on it, I don't even remember the name of it. They're both kind of okay, but Get Your Yaya's Out has an energy that the later albums produced by the Rolling Stones Incorporated uh, just doesn't have. And it's for similar reasons that I like another live album that I've also mentioned in the past. It's Humble Pie's Performance Rockin' the Fillmore from 1971, another highly acclaimed live recording. For those that don't know, Humble Pie was a supergroup of sorts featuring Steve Marriott, who had left the small faces. 
uh, guitar wunderkind Peter Frampton. Greg Ridley was from Spooky Tooth, and Jerry Shirley on drums had played with a number of people. Isn't one of the first albums some weird sort of acoustic folky thing? Yeah, their early albums are kind of folksy, folky, bluesy, country sounding. It's it's almost like they hadn't shaken off the small faces sort yeah. of sound. But it was more sophisticated than that. But their live shows didn't incorporate any of that stuff. Uh, this album hit me like a ton of bricks when I first heard it, probably not long after I was smitten with the Yaya's album. And like that record, this is two guitars, bass and drums, doing blues and blues rock and boogie, and Frampton added a sort of a jazz sound. It's a double album. It has only seven songs, two of which each take up a full side. They do extended arranged jams of I Walk on Gilded Splinters, which is a Dr. John song, and they do a song called Rolling Stone, which they attribute to Muddy Waters, but it's really just a, an excuse to play blues for, for 20 minutes. Uh, they do a pretty straightforward version of Hallelujah, I Love Her So, which is a Ray Charles song. I really like that song. And they do a cover of I Don't Need No Doctor, which at the time had just been recorded by the new riders of the Purple Sage. And I'm thinking, that's where they got that from. But anyway, this record is just full of, of Steve Marriott's great vocals. In fact, you know, I'll hear Coco Taylor sing the blues. And I say, is that Steve Marriott or is that Coco Taylor? They sound so much similar. Uh, and I love the sounds of the of the two guitars riffing on this record i i learned how to play guitar from this album too it's just a blast to listen to so and it's one of my favorites so that's why it's coming with me to the island okay with all this you gonna have anything to relax um well let me see here because my my list if you remember was in chronological order but now i'm i'm trying to get you to just pull things out of order because you said before the show that yours wasn't in any particular order yeah well to relax i might listen to lucinda williams car wheels on a gravel road which came out in 1998 and won a grammy for best contemporary folk album it's alt country really i don't even like the term country music people hear that term and they think of hee-haw and big hair and or they think of pickup trucks and cowboy hats yeah and pickup trucks yeah but lucinda williams incorporates those traditional rural elements uh i'd even go so far as to say that her singing style is like maybe not literally but like cowboy singers there's a whoa lonesome me tone that she has and her songs are pretty stark they're about loneliness and revenge and longing and heartbreak and also it's not just her singing and her songwriting style but it's 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 the way this album is produced and the style of the music it's it's a defining all-country album for sure it took her a long time to make this record her first attempt at it was abandoned because she couldn't get it right earned her the reputation of being a perfectionist and then eventually Roy Batan and Steve Earle got involved in the production and they got it going. And Emmy Lou Harris does a vocal on it, too. Uh, it's 20 years old now and it really feels timeless. Uh, Lucinda Williams, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. I don't think I've ever heard her music, so this is going to be something I'll have to explore. Yeah, this would be the one to start with. Okay. So when I was growing up in my house, there were three artists who were known only by their first names. Louie, Ella, and Fats. And if you don't know who Louie and Ella are, well, I don't know what to tell you. But Fats was Fats Waller, and my parents loved Fats Waller. They had a couple of friends who also were huge Fats Waller fans, and they'd always be listening to uh, Fats Waller records. Fats Waller was an African-American piano player, popular in the 20s through the early 40s. He died at an early age. I think he was only 39 when he died in 1943. 
But he was very popular, not only as a piano player, but also as an organist and sometimes as a... Uh, as a, as a, he would do comedy songs to some degree. He's also thought to have written a lot more popular songs than he's acknowledged for because he sold them as soon as he wrote them. But he's probably most well-known for the song Ain't Misbehavin'. You may recall uh, many years ago there was a musical called Ain't Misbehavin' that was based on that song and other Fats Waller compositions. But... A lot of his recordings exist. He was uh, he was with the Victor Record Company from like the beginning, so he was one of the the earliest people to make records, doing um, uh, parodies of, of of standards as well as his great solo stuff. Uh, he would take, um, for instance, songs that were popular by um, by Rudy Valley, for example, and just parody them, just make them faster and more syncopated and joke about the lyrics and make up his own lyrics and things like that and he was well known for that but we really liked his uh his jazz piano playing he was an innovator of the stride uh piano technique where that's where the left hand really does a lot of work while the right hand goes about its business doing something else completely different and some of his 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 piano solos are just really incredible uh he was influenced heavily by james p johnson who was a uh, ragtime piano player in the early 20th century, and he's recorded some of his songs too. Carolina Stomp, or Carolina Shout, is, uh, is, a, is a great piano solo. I mean, a, a great piano solo. So Fats Waller, one of my favorite people. What's the name of the record? Ah, well, see, that's where the problem is. See, uh, Fats didn't live long enough to make an album. He only recorded sides. Right. And there are literally hundreds of compilations of Fats Waller music out there. So Okay, we'll give you one exemption. You can burn your own CD for Fats Waller. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. I, I appreciate the dispensation. So it's Doug's Fats Waller record. Now, I did pick a classical piece, and it's whenever anybody asks me what I like about classical music, I say, well, I like Bach. Bach is, is easy to go to. And my favorite thing by Bach is the Brandenburg Concertos. It's the one piece that I know really, really well from beginning to end. I know all the pieces. And... The way I was introduced to it was my father bought Switched on Bach when I was like 10, and it has the Brandenburg number three on it, which is the one that goes da-da-dun, 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 da-da-dun. And I used to listen to that over and over and over again and finally discovered that, oh, my parents also have an orchestral recording of the Brandenburg Concerto. So that's what got me into listening to it. And... I've had three recordings of the Brandenburg Concertos. I had one that I don't know who did it. I got it from the Musical Heritage Society. It was, it was to me, it sounded really great. Then I got another one that was done on period pieces, uh, period instruments, which I thought was pretty good too. And then I eventually found a copy of the one that my parents had. And now I have uh, one by uh, Sir Neville Mariner and the uh, St. Martin of the Field. Um, I just I, I don't know what it is about this, maybe because it's familiar. Um, it has wonderful, very bright themes. It has very con- it's a very common um, used piece of music. You, there, there are three or four easily pieces in here that people would be familiar with if they heard them. From movies, um, soundtracks, from commercials. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like the, almost like the four seasons, yeah. kind of like that. It has that kind of popularity. Yeah. But it's happy music. It's joyous music. It is. It's not like some of Bach's religious music that can be deep and serious. Again, things like the St. Matthew Passion, some of the arias are, can be painful. Yeah, the organ works. Some of the organ works are it, incredibly, yeah. whoa. Dark, yeah. But the Brandenburgs are happy. They're just happy music. Do they all fit on a single CD in your version? Well, that's the other question yes. I had. I think if I had to, I'd take the first three, or maybe the first four. 
So if I had to jettison something, I guess it would be five and six, although I like five and six a lot too. Okay. But I would definitely take one through four if they only fit on a CD. Do I get an exemption for that too? Nope. Okay. But you can certainly find individual CDs of the first three and the second three. Yeah. So our next track pick I had uh, a few weeks ago was Fatboy Slim's You've Come a Long Way, Baby. And I will be taking that with me to my desert island. I like electronic music. I like EDM, some of it. I enjoy the repetition of it. I enjoy the dynamics of how the the songs are made, how they progress, how they ebb and flow, the sampling. I just think it's it's a fun genre of music. But it has to be done well, and it has to be done with style. And in Fatboy Slim's case, a great sense of humor and a good sense of what works, of disparate things that work. There are a lot of DJs in the world, but Fatboy Slim is my favorite, and You've Come a Long Way Baby is one of my favorites of his. It's his second album from 1998, and I have to admit, I didn't pay any attention to this when it first came out. I was working at, a, at an alternative rock station, but we didn't play this kind of stuff, so it was like four or five years later that I had a what-the-heck-is-that moment when I heard stuff from this album. Um, not very familiar with it. I do know the one hit, that the, that really big hit. What was that? Uh, well, the single was Praise You. Yeah, I think that's it. And then there was the Rockefeller Skank, which was pretty popular. That's the one that goes... Right about now, defunct soul brother. Check it out now, defunct soul brother. Yeah, I know that one. And then the other one that's popular is uh, right here, right now. Oh, yeah, of course. Right here, right now, right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard a lot on uh, sports broadcasts, things like that. What's interesting about that is that there is a definite connection with that and some sort of slightly edgy new wave from the early 80s. Think about bands like A Certain Ratio and Cabaret Voltaire. There's that same sort of energy. It's just with Fat Boy Slim, it's cleaner. It's it's more better produced. Yeah, it's really well done, and it's fun to listen to, and it's effective, and it's infectious. You know, one of the things that people like to do is figure out where some of these song samples that he uses come from. And my head always explodes when I hear about these. And one of the ones... One of the string samples that he uses in Right Here, Right Now, in fact, it's, it's, it's pretty much the melody, the main riff of the song, is from this, it's a very tiny piece from the string section of a James Gang song. You know, Joe Walsh's band from the late 60s. That's just wild. And speaking of just wild from the late 60s, I had to pick some Frank Zappa, of course. Of course, you always talk about Zappa. And yet, in more than two years, we have never done a show about Frank Zappa, and I don't know why. Well, part of the, part of the problem is I'm not, I'm not completely knowledgeable. I think we'd want to have a guest, a Zappa file on, on the show to talk about it. But the other thing is it's really hard to talk about Frank and not be able to play his music, Yeah. Uh, you know, which we're not allowed to do, really, without paying royalty rights. So there's that. But another problem is that the guy was into everything from doo-wop to Stravinsky. That, those were his influences. I mean, he's all over the road, so he's very hard to characterize. His, his taste and his, his expanse is quite broad. You know, he, he's very difficult to characterize. And as I said, I, I, I mentioned uh, one of his albums in, a, in an extract a couple of weeks ago, and even that was not the best that I could suggest. But it does give a, a, a sort of an idea of what kind of music he does. The one album that I would take with me is Hot Rats, which is a, a solo album that he actually essentially did with uh, Ian Underwood, who was a guy he played with uh, on keyboards and, and woodwinds. Um, this is 
this is the album that is really considered an avant-garde classic in a lot of places in the world. It's um, it's got jazz on it. It's got rock on it. It's got um, the, you know the jazz fusion sort of thing that that was going on at the time. It's got Captain Beefheart on it, uh, doing madness. Um, it's it's really just got a lot of stuff that I can listen to and appreciate over and over again. It's it's there are certainly more entertaining albums by Frank that I would like, but. I, I don't like to listen to them as regularly as I would listen to this. And I, I really enjoy Hot Rats for the, uh, for the improvisation and the, just the interesting things that he does, the interesting sounds that are on it. And, and, the, and the fact that it's a, a multi-tracked record by really essentially just two or three guys. Well, one thing we've both mentioned when discussing these lists is that the records by a specific artist we picked is not necessarily the best or our favorite, but if you can only choose one... There's a reason for that particular one. My Grateful Dead choice, for instance, is by far not the most indicative of the Grateful Dead. And it's kind of the same with your Zappa pick here. Yeah, it's, it is difficult to pick. I mean, I think most Zappa fans would be hard-pressed to find a, to try and find one album that represents everything. It's just impossible because his style changed over the years. What he concentrated on and what, what types of music he was writing changed all the time. His political views sort of came out later and... So it's it's really hard to get all of that into one record without, you know, breaking the one disc rule. And that's a hard and fast rule. They're going to check you when you get to the Desert Island to I'm make good. sure you only have 10 records. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, my next pick is a Brian Eno song album, as we refer to them. This is from 1974, and it's Taking Tiger Mountain by Strategy. This is the one that he used the oblique strategy cards on and I, that always amazes me because i'm whenever i listen to this album i'm wondering what card did he pick is this the one that said emphasize the flaws is this the one that said try it backwards is this the one that said do it without the most important part or, or whatever but anyway these arbitrary uh guides to h help him design these songs were a big part of the why the album sounds the way it does and I like all the little songs. They're, they're, it's the goofiest of the four uh, song albums, I think. Uh, it's especially goofy with songs that you know incorporate the Portsmouth Symphonia, which was a group of musicians that played orchestral music, but they didn't play their own instruments. While they were, <laughs> while they were very good musicians, they were they were ignorant of the instrument that they were playing. So what they come up with is is, is delicious dissonance and awfulness but it's 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 a wonderful sound and it's one of the things that he incorporated on this album it's one of the things i love about it um and also you know using typewriters and the, some of the words of the songs are just stream of consciousness and one of my favorite songs um what is it uh, the true wheel uh is where a certain ratio got their name from that's part of the lyrics and also the modern lovers got their name from this song it's part of the lyrics and in fact my future band will get its name from this song as well it's the final diners which i think would make a great uh rock band name but anyway this is uh, an album by eno that i can listen to over and over again and find little delights all through it um as much as i like uh here come the warm jets and and another green world and those albums this is the one that is has a lot of serendipity in it and uh, and is a lot more delightful uh, to listen to. It's true that I really wanted to pick one of those four song albums that Brian Eno did in the 70s, and I just didn't have a slot. I wouldn't have picked that one, but uh, those four records together hold a very important place for me because 
Eno did explore all of the possibilities of the song form on those four records. Some of them have ambient stuff. Some of them are very rocking. You know, think of the King's Lead Hat, for instance. The Sky Saw is strange. St. Elmo's Fire is just hauntingly beautiful. All four of those records are wonderful. It, it was hard to pick one, but this is, like I said, this is the one that I can listen to over and over again uh, and enjoy. The other ones I can listen to, absolutely. I think they're just wonderful to listen to, but not as much as, as this one. This is one I really like. So is that it? Is that 10? No, that's not 10. I have one more. You sure? I haven't yeah. been counting. See, no. Mine was in order, so. Yeah, well, mine are in order, too. They're just not in any kind of rational order. They're just a list of 10 things. So finally, my last Desert Island disc is Exposure by Robert Fripp. It's his uh, first solo album, actually, uh, released in 1977. Uh, it was meant, let me see if I remember this correctly. It was meant to be part of a trilogy that included Daryl Hall's solo album and Peter Gabriel's second album, both of which Fripp produced. However, Daryl Hall's solo album did not get released for a couple of years for some reason. And the trilogy idea went by the wayside, and so this album exists as a standalone. Although you can definitely compare it to Peter Gabriel's second album, even his first album, too, Fripp's on both of them. Um, this album has a lot of Frippertronics. It has some pretty good songwriting by, by Daryl Hall uh, and lead vocals by Daryl Hall. It's surprising, by, uh, it's surprising to hear him uh, work out on some of these songs. It's definitely not white Philly soul, that's for sure. Uh, I just really like this record um, only because it's got it's got Fripp on it and it's got these really clean versions of songs that he'd been working on. It was recorded in New York City during, you know, the early years of punk in 1977. So it's really got a, a great sound. It has arguably one of the best songs of the decade, which is the version of Here Comes the Flood on that record, which is light years better than Peter Gabriel's version. And every time I hear that, it's just chilling, especially, you know, as we look at the world facing collapse from climate change and we hear the lyrics of that. And this was back in the 1970s. And just the way that song goes from mellow to, you know, those crescendos after uh, at each refrain is just extraordinary. You know, I'm pretty sure I've seen videos of him performing it just on the piano, just, you know, no backing or anything like that. So it's, it's that kind of song. It's that kind of powerful song. Yeah. So that's it. Those are my 10. So this is an interesting exercise, isn't it? It really makes you think about what is important to the music. And and as you pointed out, particularly about London Calling, it, it's that personal connection you have to a record that, that brings you back in time. There are a couple of records that I would have wanted to put on because of that, and one in particular is, is King Crimson's Red. Every time I hear the first notes of uh, Starless at the end of that record, it's just like I melt. And I remember that time in the 1980s when... I was driving across a bridge with a friend of mine, moving from one apartment to another. It was like this, moving from Queens into Manhattan, you know, it was like this, uh, doors were opening, it was like two in the morning, and, and the music was just blaring. You know, th there are these things in our amygdala that we remember about certain times we've listened to music. I'd like to tap into my amygdala <laughs> and just, you know. It, it's interesting that neither of us chose Pink Floyd, neither of us chose Yes, which we both like. Again, if I didn't have as much classical music, I might have brought something like that in. Wish You Were Here, possibly. Dark Side of the Moon is sort of played out, but no Beatles anywhere. I expected you to have Beatles. And and just so people know, we didn't talk about our lists before we recorded. So when we discussed mine in last week's episode, Doug had no idea what I was going to talk about. And today, I didn't know what he was going to talk about either. 
Yeah, I think um, one of the one of the things that I found in trying to put this list together and why it took so long is I wanted to imagine what it would be like if I I wanted to I wanted to be able to touch as many kinds of music that I liked in a good way. And so I didn't include the Beatles because, I mean, I can play back the Beatles in my head pretty much. <laughs> exactly. You know, um, yeah. Same thing with Billy Joel. I mean, not that I would ever pick Billy Joel. But- you, you could probably... You could probably play back all of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely right. Hearts Club band in yeah, your head. Yeah, and which, you know, while I'm sunbathing on the desert island, I, I might want to do that. Yes, it would be your day in, day in the life. But I, one of the things I wanted to be able to do was to make sure I had a, a, a cross genre of, of, you know, of touchstones, I guess, as it were. So that's why I, I didn't want to waste it on, on picking a Beatles album or, you know, I didn't pick any Kinks. I didn't pick The Who. I didn't pick anything like that, which... Again, I, I think all that stuff is really great, too, but I don't know if I wanted to listen to it exclusively all the time. Right, and that was my thought about things like Joy Division. There was a period when I listened to Joy Division a lot, but now it it just seems very dark when I listen to that music, and, and I wouldn't want that to be 10% of my musical library. Yeah, well, that's another thing, too. You know, it's 10% of everything that you could listen to is this. Yeah. So, I mean, 10% of the music I'm going to be listening to is Robert Fripp Exposure, you know, and realistically speaking, I don't really think I want to do that as much as I love the album. <laughs> but, you know, as an experiment, it forces I was forced into keeping that because, well, there really isn't anything else that's representative of of so much as the exposure or the Hot Rats by Frank Zappa or the Clash, London Calling. I mean, if I want to hear a little American musical, I can put on uh, side three or something, you know, and there's like American sounds on that. So it it, it is an interesting experiment. So as with last week's episode, there are no next track picks because this is an episode full of next track picks. I will put the Apple Music previews into the show notes on thenexttrack.com because you all check out the show notes, right? This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>